And if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, as we get back to our study of the book of Acts. Before we get to Acts chapter 5, let me begin with a principle that is taught, or at least implied, all over the Bible, and certainly in the book of Acts. Here it is. When someone turns to Jesus, that is, becomes a Christian, it means a total rejection of any other organizing principle for life and eternity. Coming to Jesus is not just adding him. When someone turns to Jesus, it includes a total rejection of any other previously held organizing principle for life and eternity. This is particularly true for adults as opposed to kids who grow up in a Christian home hearing the gospel from day one. Kids growing up in a Christian home still need conversion and many will have a, a moment at which that's experienced and known, maybe a crisis of faith, maybe a light bulb moment. But when we're talking about adults who become Christians as adults, Coming to embrace Jesus is not just bolting him on to whatever else they have already previously believed. And all of us do have beliefs of various kinds. Even those who are irreligious, the, the so-called nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S is a category of people who if they were checking a box on a on a survey about religious affiliation would check none. Even those people have faith in something. They have things they're trusting in. All of us have some way in which we're seeking to be justified or approved or good enough. Metaphorically, all of us are driving around in a car some of us have a car that goes by a, a proper name. It might be Islam or Buddhism or Mormonism. Others have uh, a car they're driving in that doesn't have a proper name, but it's, it's a car of life nonetheless. It's, maybe it's just a, a loose principle to live and let live or to not judge or to take care of the earth or, or karma. Be nice to people and they'll be nice to you. If all of us have some car that we're driving in in life, then coming to believe in Jesus isn't like adding an accessory to our existent car. It's not like putting sweet rims on your car for, for more bling. It's not like adding a supercharger to the engine to get more power. Adding Jesus is not like hanging fuzzy dice from the rearview mirror just to make you laugh. I realize that all kinds of people actually do treat Christianity like that, as simply an addition, as simply a spiff up. But that's not true Christianity. To come to Jesus means getting out of your old car, giving up on it, renouncing it, torching it, and getting in his car for good. This is so easy to do and so hard. 
it is so easy to do because Jesus welcomes so freely. Jesus picks up hitchhikers to keep the metaphor going. He charges nothing. If we simply believe that he's our only hope, he will let us in and he will get us to God. Coming to Jesus is as easy as falling into a chair. You give up standing and you rest. Coming to Jesus is as easy as quitting a job. You say it, and if you mean it, that's it, it's done. On the other hand, coming to Jesus is so hard. It means admitting that for all of your life, you were driving the wrong way. You were going against God, not for him, not towards him. Ignoring his son, the Savior, because you thought you didn't need him, is the most heinous sin that has ever been imagined. For many, coming to Jesus means admitting that mom and dad taught you wrong and what your community of friends believe is wrong. And it means going public and saying to the world, I was wrong. We were wrong. Jesus is right. Now we've seen these dynamics play out in the book of Acts. That the gospel is so easy and so hard. So far in Acts, we've come across three sermons preached by Peter. In Acts 2, in Acts 3, in Acts 4. And we see a variety of responses In Acts 2, Peter preaches a very hard sermon. He's very direct. He says to the crowd in Jerusalem, you crucified the Messiah. But he also says that there's forgiveness, even for that sin. If you will just believe and put all your eggs in this basket. That day, 3,000 believed. In Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches again. And shortly after, we're told that the number now is 5,000 Jesus followers. People are falling into the kingdom left and right because it's so easy. There is no sin that keeps them away from it except unbelief. But not everyone does believe. And so in Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches again, but this time he's on trial He is in front of religious leaders, the the very same ones that tried Jesus and got him executed just weeks before. They're trying Peter and John for healing and teaching in Jesus' name. They're not denying that a miracle had taken place back in Acts chapter 3. They do not attempt to debate whether Jesus actually rose from the dead or not. They do not make any effort to biblically and theologically refute what Peter says about the Old Testament scriptures, that the Messiah would both be rejected and exalted, and it's Jesus. No, they're not interested in any of that, because if Jesus is true, And if the apostles' preaching is true, then it would change too much for them. It would cost them too much. They would be proven so wrong 
they would have to admit they had been going against God. As a people who were waiting for Messiah, they would have to admit that they killed Messiah. And that can't be. That won't happen. This has to stop. Embracing Jesus is so very hard. And so they sternly warn Peter and John. They censor them. Look, look back at chapter 4. We're almost to our passage in chapter 5. But remind yourself of this in chapter 4, verse 17. The Jewish leaders said, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. They can't even say the name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. And what came after that? Well, the apostles prayed for boldness, and God answered. And so they healed in Jesus' name, and they taught all the more in Jesus' name. The church is growing, it's flourishing, and not even Satan's attacks from within can set it back. Chapter 5. Verse 14, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of men and women. People started coming into Jerusalem from the outskirts to get in on this Jesus thing. And how will the religious leaders respond? Well, that brings us to today's passage, chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Look there, if you would. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the curtain, the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of men, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now in this passage, we have a number of back and forths. There's action and reaction and response and reaction. It's dizzying a bit. It's fast-paced. It's, it's intense. By my count, there are around 17 different actions or reactions and 12 different scene changes. It's a bit like a chess match or a boxing match. But to analyze this together, we don't need to take this blow by blow or move by move. It does fall into some grooves, I think. I think there are three rounds which contain all the jabs and blows. Here's the first round. Round one, we could call it ineffective imprisonment. Ineffective imprisonment in verses 17 to 25. Now, before we get to that imprisonment, take note of the few words before the imprisonment. What's motivating their imprisonment and really re-imprisonment of these apostles? Well, as I said, the church is growing. Uh, the apostles are still speaking. Uh, word is spreading. People are loving these apostles and their message and the healings that come. And so the high priests and the Sadducees were told, verse 17, were filled with jealousy. They were jealous of the apostles' popularity and influence and effectiveness and spiritual leadership. These are the Sadducees. They're to be some of the key religious leaders in Israel. They were the ruling party of religious leaders. They were those who were over the priesthood of Israel's religion. They, they were in charge of the whole temple. They were wealthy people. These were the aristocracy. It was widely known that the Sadducees had struck a deal with the Romans. The Sadducees would do their best to keep peace among any rabble-rousers in Judaism. And the Romans would then let the temple be for those Jews to do their temple thing. 
What's the car that they're driving through life? Popularity, power, control, wealth, prestige, status quo, keeping peace, protecting their stuff. They don't want anyone messing with or threatening these things. And so they arrest the apostles, not just Peter and John as in in chapter 4. Now all the apostles, things are escalating here. They're thrown in public prison, we're told, which may just mean that they were jailed publicly. But either way, it's public. It's meant to make a statement about who's in charge. Who is in charge? Who's in charge in this chapter? Well, it's not the Sadducees. It's not the Romans. It's not even the apostles. It's God. God is in charge. And so he sends an angel for a jailbreak. We're not told too many specifics about how this works. At least here. Were the guards put to sleep? How did they have no recollection of this? We, we don't know. It doesn't say. And really it doesn't matter. God could do this a thousand different ways. In Acts chapter 16, God uses an earthquake to break open a jail. Here he sends an angel, and we're not exactly sure how he got it done, but he got it done. Now, the Bible doesn't always tell us that God gets his people out of prison. He'll get you out of every pickle. A lot of the New Testament, in fact, is actually written from jails, from prison. The book of Acts will end with Paul in prison for a couple of years. And that won't even be his final imprisonment, not even his worst imprisonment. God doesn't always get his people out of pickles. He doesn't always send an angel. We shouldn't be presumptuous. He may do it. He can do it. But if not, remember those three words from the three Hebrew children? as they stood in front of the fiery furnace. King Nebuchadnezzar required everyone to bow before the golden statue. They refused. King Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw them into this fiery furnace. And they said, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to answer you about any of this. Our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if not, we will not serve your God. We, we will not serve your gods. He, our God can deliver us from the fiery furnace, but even if not, well, God did rescue those three Hebrew children from the fire, and he did rescue the apostles from the jail in Acts 5 so that God's people through all the ages would know that God can rescue his people from any trouble or calamity anytime he wants, any way he wants. And usually, if he does rescue you, it's not just for your comfort, but also for his cause. Isn't that evident in the angel's commission in verse 20? It's like a recommission all over again, isn't it? The angel says, come out and go back to the temple. Go back to the temple and speak. You might expect the the angel to say, come out, now get out of town. 
This is heating up here in Jerusalem. Let it cool down. Give it a few weeks. Then you can come back. Lay low for a little while. No. Stay in Jerusalem and go back to the temple, the place where the Sadducees are in charge, the place where you last got arrested, that very public place. Go there and speak to the people the very thing you've been warned not to do, the very thing you've been arrested for twice. Speak all the words of this life, it says. Speak all the words. Don't hold anything back. Don't give a truncated message, not a chicken-hearted message. Speak all the words of this life. Many of our Bibles have life capitalized there. This life. What a great way to describe our message. The life. What a great way to describe the man in the message. He's the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's almost like this is a nickname for Jesus and or a nickname for his resurrection and or his message. It's the life. And they go and proclaim just like they were told to do. Immediately, with unreserved obedience. As soon as the temple is open for business, at dawn, they are there and they begin to teach. Now, we should probably pause here to note that staying put when the heat is on isn't always the answer for Christians, or at least that it isn't the only answer for Christians. In Acts 8, persecution drives Christians out of Jerusalem, and we're not given any indication that they were, they were chicken for, for doing so, for leaving. In fact, instead, as they flee from Jerusalem, the gospel goes with them and the gospel spreads. Later in Acts chapter 8, the Holy Spirit tells Philip, head south, go down to Samaria, preach the gospel there. Sometimes you flee. Sometimes you go. Missionaries today have to decide when the heat gets turned up, what is best for the gospel here? Sometimes it might be wise to lie low for a little bit. It might be strategic to move somewhere else for a time. We need wisdom. These aren't easy decisions. We don't always have an angel telling us exactly where to go. But we do here in Acts 5. That's unique. The angel says, stay, go to the temple, and hold nothing back. Talk about the life. And that's what they do. About the same time that they get to preaching, there is some serious head-scratching going on on the other side of the chessboard. Someone says, go get the apostles for their trial. Someone comes back and says, they're not there. We have no idea how they got out. The guards are there. The guards aren't sleeping. They're standing. The door is locked, but the room is empty. They're gone. And so they were all greatly perplexed. They wondered, what will come of this? If you look down in your Bibles, verse 21 to 25 is a really drawn-out narrative about them discovering the jailbreak. The actual jailbreak, back in verse 19, was told to us in a single sentence. But the bumbling discovery of the jailbreak is told to us with about five times more detail, I think, to emphasize something of the humor of it. Where'd they go? How'd this happen? What's this mean? 
And then some keystone caper comes in in verse 25. The guys you put in prison for speaking about Jesus are back at the temple speaking about Jesus. It shows the ineptitude of those who conspire against Jesus. Remember Psalm 2? Acts 5 is nothing less than Psalm 2 being played once again. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. They conspire against the Lord and his anointed. But he who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He will have his way. He will put his king on his holy hill. In fact, he's already there. It is an ineffective imprisonment. Then round two, we could call it infuriating interrogation. Infuriating interrogation. Yes, I do have two more eyes for round three. I got a little carried away with alliteration this week. But will you see if this works? I think it does. Infuriating interrogation. Verse 26 Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now don't let the bumbling nature of the last scene inform this scene. This scene is serious. It's legit. We need to try to picture it in their context at their time. This council is the Sanhedrin, 70 rulers or judges. They met in these judicial hearings in a room with, it was horse-shaped. You have 35 on one side, 35 on another, the high priest at the front, and those accused standing in the middle. If you're a Jew which these apostles were, this was the highest human court. In fact, it may not even be fair to think of it as a human court with all of Israel's Old Testament history. There's nothing like this in U.S. jurisprudence. Imagine the Senate with the, the Supreme Court justices and the President of the United States forming a judicial body And imagine them having carte blanche authority to lock you up and throw away the key forever. Imagine they have the means of getting people executed, even innocent people, which they had just done weeks before with Jesus. Imagine standing before them, not the first time, but the second time. You've been warned, you've been censored, you've been threatened, you've been jailed. It is, in fact, true when they say, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What will you say? How will you respond? I wonder if Peter, before speaking to this council, recalled what Jesus had told them in Luke 21 where Jesus said, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. 
This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand, not to worry, not to, not to come up with a game plan about how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Here's the mouth with wisdom that he gave them in Acts 5. Peter and the apostles answered, verse 29, we must obey God rather than man. And then they give a power-packed, rich in multifaceted expose of Jesus, the God of our fathers, raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And, by the way, so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is an infuriating interrogation. The apostles are on trial for what? For speaking. They're questioned here before the Sanhedrin for what? Well, notice it's not for the jailbreak. They don't bring that up. It's almost like they, they got together beforehand and said, hey, let's not bring that one up, okay? We don't need to even hear how that happened. Let's just stick with, we said not to, you did. Don't bring up the jailbreak. And they don't. But here they are, they're being questioned. For what? For speaking of Jesus. And how do they answer? They speak of Jesus. Oh, you filled Jerusalem with this talk of this man. What do you have to say for yourself? Well, let me fill this room with Jesus. And it's an infuriating interrogation. It backfires right in their face. They're so clear. Jesus is the leader and the Savior. He's given by God, the God of our fathers, the God of the Old Testament. God sent him, and you crucified him. That's all right. God raised him from the dead. He's now exalted. We are witnesses to all of this. We have to speak. That's what witnesses do. They testify. God told us to speak. To speak for him is to obey him. And yet, what they speak is not just condemnation. They say, God has done all this. The sending of Jesus, the raising of Jesus, exalting of Jesus. God has done all this, verse 31, to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. In fact, he will give the Holy Spirit to all who will simply obey. Meaning, I think, turn, recognize, repent. Do you hear how there is a hint of mercy here? Oh, there's direct confrontation. You crucified the one you were waiting for, or so you said. But do you hear how there's at least a hint of invitation here? There's forgiveness of sins because of Jesus. Repent, respond, turn to him. God gave Jesus and raised Jesus that there might be forgiveness of sins, even the sins of nailing him to a tree. Amazing mercy. 
But you got to get out of the car you've been driving. You had it all wrong. You were going all backwards. You've been going against God, not for God, not towards God. And yet, despite your rebellion, God can and will forgive because of Jesus if you only trust, if you turn and trust. The same fork in the road stands before some of you here today. You've heard the gospel. It is a bit of a confrontation. Jesus was crucified for sins. We have sins. We're in trouble with God. You got to hear that. You got to embrace that or you'll never turn to Jesus. You'll think you need a different kind of savior than one that would die on the cross and bear guilt for you. But maybe you've come to see today. Yeah, maybe that is the answer. I think it is the answer. Turn. Get out of the car you've been driving your whole life and all the cars you've test drove over the years. Give up on them and get in Jesus' car. Let him drive you to God. In Acts chapter 2, Peter got direct. He brought conviction for sin, but offered forgiveness and the people there were cut to the heart. And they said, tell us what to do. And Peter said, believe. Follow Jesus. Be baptized. 3,000 that day were added. It's so easy. It's so hard, though. The Sanhedrin is cut to the heart as well with a very similar message. They hear the conviction. They hear the, the declaration of who Jesus is. They're cut to the heart. But here it's not conviction. The ESV translates it enraged. It's a similar feeling to conviction. One is sorrow and guilt and weight and wishing it weren't. The other one is boiling, anger, stirring up in the heart. They were enraged and they wanted to kill him, kill them. It's hard to embrace Jesus and to let everything else go. Round three, ironic intervention. Ironic intervention here with the possibility of execution looming. The apostles are excused from the court and we, the readers, are allowed to sit in on a private meeting of the Sanhedrin. And we read that Gamaliel, the most respected scholar of the day, he reasons with the group. His advice is that they leave this Jesus movement be. They take a hands-off approach, at least for now. And it works. They believe him. It's an ironic intervention, ironic in that the apostles were saved from the Sanhedrin that wanted to kill them by the leading member of the Sanhedrin. Here's his rationale. He reminds them of two test cases that might seem similar to Jesus and his followers. He says, remember Thutis? He had a movement like this. He had 400 followers, but then he was killed. 
and his followers gave up and went home. It just fizzled. Remember Judas the Galilean? He had followers. There was some excitement, but then he was killed, and the movement fizzled. It came to nothing. So with this Jesus thing, Gamaliel reasons, verse 38, if it is of man, it will fail. Verse 39, but if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it. In fact, if it's of God and you try to stop it, you will actually be opposing God. Now, there is some real truth there. It is true that if this Jesus movement is of God, you can't stop it. We've already seen some examples of that earlier in our chapter. And if it is of God and you try to stop it, then, ergo, you will be opposing God. That's true. But there are also some flaws in Gamaliel's thinking. His wait-and-see approach is far too short-sighted to be helpful. Depending on the sample size of how many years we're talking, it isn't always true that that which looks like it's fizzling is false, and that which looks like is enduring is true and real. If Gamaliel's advice were perfectly sound, that would mean that now Islam looks pretty good after 1,600 years or so. Mormonism, that's only got a, you know five generations or so, but it's going pretty well and seems to be growing? Well, no, we, we don't use this test. It, it will be true in the end. It will be true, I believe, that Christianity endures and it's proven to be true. And it is also true even now that there is some persuasive power in Christianity's endurance despite all the opposition. I, I've said many times in sermons that if the resurrection is a lie, it's hard to see how this thing took off like it did. There is some persuasive power in Christianity's endurance, but not proof. And it's not the only thing to say. It's not the only bit of data to wrestle with. What Gamaliel was doing is putting his head in the sand and not dealing with other points of data that were right in his face. I mean, what of the resurrection, Gamaliel? What's your explanation for the empty tomb and these many witnesses? Gamaliel, what do you make of Peter's handling of the biblical texts showing Messiah as rejected and exalted? Interact with the texts, Gamaliel, teacher of the day. What of the undeniable miracles like the one in Acts 3, which they even investigate and conclude, it happened, we can't deny it, we're not even going to deal with that, we're just going to try to shut them up. You see, those are points of data that would be more useful for Gamaliel to use than simply the endurance test. If it's real, it'll last. If it's false, it'll fizzle. It's true in the long run. Not always true with a shorter sample size. And yet, despite the flaws in Gamaliel's reasoning, 
it worked. The apostles weren't killed, not yet. They were set free. It's an ironic intervention, not just because one of the Sanhedrin's own was the means of being saved from the Sanhedrin, but the logic is flawed, and yet that's what worked. It worked because God was behind it all. God can use an angel to get his people out of prison. God can use an interrogation in the highest human courts to set up a pulpit for Peter. God can use the flawed reasoning of a member of the Sanhedrin to keep his apostles alive. And God can even use persecution and pain that he allows for his purposes. Because he, I say again, he doesn't always get us out of prison. He doesn't always send an angel. It doesn't always work where Gamaliel's upside down wisdom means we survive or live another day. We know that from the rest of the book of Acts. We're just a couple of chapters away from the first Christian martyr. And we're right smack dab in the middle of the first physical Christian beating since Jesus. Verse 40, they took his advice, verse 39. Verse 40, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. God is sovereign over this too, this beating. Likely this was the famous 40 lashes minus one, 39 lashes with a whip. These whips, most likely, which was used, had multiple strands at the end. At the end of each of these strands were embedded pieces of metal or bone or glass. It was meant to clamp in to the back or chest of those being whipped or flogged or scourged. And then it would be pulled, ripping away those pieces of flesh. Imagine just one strike. Imagine the mess. Imagine the pain. That's one. And again. And again. And again. 39 times. That's one apostle. Next guy. What do those backs look like? What do these men feel like? They walk away from the council, meaning they have to walk down public Jerusalem streets, blood seeping through their robes onto the ground. It's a familiar scene to those of us who know the Bible. The flogging and abuse that they did upon our Jesus was also meant to inflict pain and shame. But what does it say? Verse 41, they left the council rejoicing. Can you believe it? Rejoicing. Not rejoicing in the pain, not in the shame. Rejoicing 
in their close identification with Jesus. Jesus spoke and he was scourged. These men spoke of Jesus and they were scourged. They were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the, for the name of Jesus. There's actually a play on words going on here in the Greek. It says they're counted worthy to suffer dishonor. We might translate that. They were honored to be dishonored. Honored to be dishonored because Jesus was. And because Jesus said things like this in Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And so they did to Jesus. This is what Peter wrote about some years later when he wrote a letter called First Peter. He said, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And a couple chapters later, Peter goes on to say, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name, even. And that's right here where we remember that might be what we closely need to identify with at this point in time. We may not soon be whipped for Jesus or even under trial because of Jesus. We may not yet be told, you better not speak of him. But most Christians, even in the U.S., eventually are insulted for believing in Jesus and proclaiming him. And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. They rejoiced because the reward was great, because they identified with Jesus, because they were honored to be dishonored. And so they went right back at it. The last verse of chapter 5. Here's the conclusion, the, the solution, the final say in the matter. Every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. All the time, everywhere, in every way. The church was fiercely opposed, but fully obedient. Because they knew that God could keep them from any trouble, any evil, if he wants to. And so they could trust him with whatever evil or trouble they experienced, knowing that God allowed that for them. It not only reminded them of their Savior, it also spoke loudly to the world around them 
These guys really mean it. They're not willing just to say it, but to suffer for it. They were unrelenting in their commitment to the spread of the gospel. It's like this north compass thing. It just bam, bam. Every time something tries to spin it, bam, bam, straight ahead, straight ahead. Keep going, keep talking. It's got to keep going. We got to keep talking about Jesus because we're heartbroken that there are people in this world who are stubborn in their unbelief. And we get it. It is hard to believe in Jesus and give up on every other thing that could save you. But we got to keep talking about Jesus to the world around us because we are so amazed and enthralled that it is so easy to come to him. That forgiveness is so free to us, not to him, but free to us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work in this place today and beyond this day to bring the gospel home to people's minds and hearts who haven't yet embraced it, for people to see the Savior and his cross and resurrection is not only true, but their only hope. We pray that in this place this morning there be people who would put old cars in park off to the side and they would get in with Jesus and ride home with him. We pray, Lord, as Christians, you would make us bold, make us wise in our communication, make us winsome, help us to know when to shut up in love and help us to know when to speak out and be bold. Well, we do pray for protection where that, Lord, might be useful, but we say we trust you. Well, we say like they said in their prayer next for, Lord, keep an eye on these things, trusting you to actually fulfill those requests as you see fit. We thank you for your care for us and protection of us and that you will not bring us anything that is not ultimately for our good and for your glory. Use us for the spread of your gospel in the world because of Jesus, the risen one. Amen.